everybody. I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, founder of the nonprofit, The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something not through no fault of our own or through our own making we keep hidden, and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow, and while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Regardless of what your personal experiences or traumas have been, this showcase series is designed to ignite the light in you, as well as providing safe harbor, education, personal growth, and resources so that no matter where you are on your journey, you'll have the courage to move on when you're ready. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary situations and struggles and found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons gleaned from those experiences. Everybody heals at a different pace, and we recognize that. So come on in, have a listen, and enjoy the ride at your own speed. It's a beautiful day in paradise, and i got to say that today because South Florida is about to get winter for a day. It makes everybody crack up, and I was talking to my guest who's from Nashville. Tomorrow it's going to be 49 in the morning, and by afternoon it will be 75. So that's my winter, and I'm sticking to it. I love it. And uh, so excited that uh, we have someone here that can represent the North, even though she'll tell you she's a Southerner. It's North to me right now. But our guest today is a very special woman who reached out to me um, a couple of months ago. And I was just putting my show together for this year, and I was looking at one of the podcasts she did. And I was so struck by the way she presented what happened to her but then started talking about how she turned her pain into her passion and bells were going off inside of me like, oh my gosh, this is, this is, this is my kind of woman where she's taken something that happened to her and is turning it into good because she's not afraid to speak now. <laughs> but we're going to go back in time. I want to welcome my, my special guest, Ms. Greta McLean from Nashville. Hi, Greta, are you there? Hi, how are you doing today? I'm great. I'm so happy that you're here with us today. As I was preparing for this yesterday, I was riveted by the story. And I, I've interviewed women that have, uh, that have been assaulted. But what got me, Greta, was how you took control of it and step by step turned it into good. So that's going to be the emphasis of our show today. But I always like to go back in time and get a little bit of an, an idea of who you are. Get your background, where you grew up, family situation, that kind of stuff. So could you tell me, ma'am, where did you grow up? Grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, actually born in Memphis there all of six weeks when my parents came and my adoptive parents came and picked me up and they are definitely my parents, whether adopted or not. And uh, brought me to Nashville and I've lived here all my life since. Did you grow up with any siblings or did they bring any other kids into the house? No ma'am, just me. An only child and as they will tell you, spoiled rotten. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Which kind of explains your devotion and love for your dad. I had heard that, that on, a, on a podcast yesterday about your relationship with your dad, which is very touching to me. My dad just turned 92 in September and he's been working for me for the last 12 years. Great relationship and I love to see that. So tell me one, what's your favorite story about your dad? Oh gosh, it's hard to pick one. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite and funniest maybe was my dad was a police officer, and so was I. And when I was going through the academy, after leaving the academy that day, I came by the uh, house and was talking to him. My mom wasn't home from work yet, and he and I were just talking and everything, and he said, well, what, what have you all been working on? I said, well, today, you know, we learned how to break down the shotgun, put it back together, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, you got it in your car, right? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, bring it in. And he got his shotgun and decided that we were going to race each other and who could break it down and put it back together. So we're sitting in the living room floor when my mother walks in watching, you know, her husband and her daughter, 
you know, with all these pieces, parts of shotguns sitting around and was just kind of like, really? <laughs> but it was, it was quite fun watching the, the expression on her face. And Dad and I were like, what? <laughs> What's the big deal? I could see my father do that. I grew up in Vermont, in a small town in Vermont, and I took my kids up there when they were little. And my dad had them out in the backyard, you know, five or seven acres of land. Um, sitting there, I recall my daughter sitting there, little, with a uh, with a probably a BB gun at the time, just shooting away. And as an older young woman, she became Annie Oakley. She is really good. Yeah. Uh, but I, I can see that, and that's fun. Now, when you were little. You said your dad was a police officer. Did he ever take you to work? Were you ever around that, or did he try to insulate you from, from law enforcement? Yeah, I never never went to work with him. He, I saw him just when he would come home, you know, in his uniform, and he always looked, you know, just to me, really special and handsome and cool. Um, and then when his friends would come over and, you know, visit, and they kept it, you know, mild if I was was around, but you know, hearing some of their old you know stories and stuff, it was just it really impacted me, and I grew up thinking that I wanted to be just like him, and I feel very thankful and blessed that I was able to follow in his footsteps. Mm -hmm. Now, when you went to college, the did you do criminal justice? Did you go that route? Actually, I didn't. Um, I wanted to follow in his footsteps, but at the time, at that age, I had heard so many wonderful things about my father, uh, how good of an officer he was. He didn't play politics, and he didn't know anybody when he joined the department, but he still managed, because of the quality of work he did, make it up to major. And I was afraid that I wouldn't meet you know, wouldn't be as good, and I didn't want to take a chance on disappointing him. So I decided to instead major in secondary education with a minor in religious studies. Not anything remotely no. close to law enforcement. <laughs> no. That's interesting. Now, just as a thought, if you were to go back to your younger self, would you rewrite that story? Because you did not do what you wanted to do because you didn't want to disappoint your dad. I don't think your dad would have been disappointed. I don't think he would either. But, um, you know, honestly, I don't think I would because I learned a lot uh, at that during that study okay. that I'm able to use now. So as far as being able to, with, with my current job at Silent No Longer, the skills of, of teaching and training and the religious studies helping somewhat. I'm by no means I'm not a minister and not even a, a, a chaplain, but I can still use that when trying to help people um, who are wanting some some faith-based guidance and counseling. So I think it I think it's good, and I wouldn't change a thing. There you go. Absolutely. I think things happen. Uh, we do things for a reason, and uh, may not know it at the time, but. I totally agree with what you did. In college, this is where we kind of, well, I, before we do that, were you a quiet child? No. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell everybody what your father used to call you? <laughs> I love this nickname. Yakky Duck. <laughs> and it was very fitting and still is. It's so funny because you come across in the podcast and stuff just this gentle southern woman, but I bet you can get on your Soapbox, yes. Yeah, there you go. I just lost the word. Your soapbox. Yes, yes ma'am. Yes, you can. And it's funny. Greta, I love how you say yes, ma'am. I do that all the time. And people are like, I'm not old enough to be a yes, ma'am. But I, I am. We both are. So yeah. that's just polite. And thank you so much for that. You're welcome. So college. We're going to jump right into what happened when you were a junior in college. Where, where were you going to school? Going to the University of Tennessee at Martin about three hours outside of Nashville. And my junior year, I was working, had gotten a position as a student employee with the campus recreation department. I was the intramural supervisor, or one of the two. And part of our duties was supervising the intramural sports twice a week. 
and loved the job. And it was not unusual for us to be in the building after it closed for the games to to run over some. So I was used to, you know, coming in and no one else being in the building other than the janitor, the evening janitor or custodian. And very nice, very nice gentleman. Everybody loved him. He, everybody said that, you know, all the kids, we said that he reminded us of, of our grandfathers. And first year, or for, I'm sorry, first semester, no issues. The second, um, he started, a few things happened that should have probably been, I guess, assigned to me, but I was young and had no experience and didn't think anything about it. But what he put, start putting his arm around me and, and hugging me extra long and things like that, and it continued to progress until one evening when I came in from the, the fields, the I was walking through a long corridor where the racquetball courts were from the playing fields to the office so that I could clock out. And he came out of one of the racquetball courts, grabbed me, pinned me against the the wall and was attempting to rape me. And thankfully another student came in and he stopped and I was able to get away and that I had no idea how to handle it at the time again I was 20 I think at the time and I had been lucky in my life I had never had any major traumas so I didn't really have a whole lot of tools to try to process what happened and the I did finally report it but they decided they didn't fire him. Instead, they moved him from the evening shift to the day shift mm -hmm. in the same academic building where I had all but one of my classes. So I saw him at least once, typically multiple times every single day. So that just was not working for me. And I just could not bring myself to go back for my senior year knowing that I was going to have to see him every single day. That I still have definitely, um, that bothers me, that I let him prevent me from, from completing my education at the time. But again, at that age, I did the best I could. And if that's one thing, I would go back and change if I could. Who did you report to? Reported it to my supervisor who was the director of campus recreation. He was excellent. He was very, very good. Um, listened, very, very sensitive, um, very caring, not at all in a, you know, he, before the day like it is today where we kind of know you don't automatically put your arm around somebody or hug them. You ask permission. He was doing that. So very, 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 very wonderful. But once it got past him to the university administration, it wasn't near that nice. And when I said something about him being at the same building where I had to see him every single day, um, I was told, well, that's where there was an opening and you need to deal with it or something vague to that effect. And that was hurtful and very disappointing. Absolutely. I'm, I'm sitting here stunned thinking, what, what's the recourse? How do you know, was there any, probably not at the time. I mean, when they said this is over, it's over, right? There was no right. challenging what the administration was saying. And there, there may have been, a Title IX person there, mm -hmm. or but or Title VII. Forgive me, I get those two confused. Um, but if there was, I was not aware of it, and that was not offered to me. So there was no offering of of any counseling or support or or anything like that. And again, you were nineteen, twenty years old, yes, and that. My whole story is called The Woman Behind the Smile. At that point, that fits you. 
and I don't know how you could have gone on with him there, and obviously you, you did leave. Did you have support from your girlfriends? And um, did anybody I, I, know other than the people in the rec center? Well, and the only person at the rec center that knew was was my my supervisor okay. that, that knew official that that it was me who had filed the report uh, or had reported to him. Um, I had one my my best friend. She she knew and did all she could, being you know about twenty, just like I was. Um, and the pastor, the Methodist pastor at the student center I went to, um, he was he was very good. But other than that, I didn't tell anybody because, like so many victims, I blame myself. Yeah. I felt ashamed and like it was my fault and didn't want anybody to know. So I know what I would say, but why why do you think you blamed yourself in this particular case? What were you doing? And I well, know the that, answer to that. That that was what I was asking myself. What did I do to make him do this? Hmm. What what was my behavior? What what did I do to cause this? wonderful, sweet, gentle grandfather, you know, that all the students love, do something like this. So that that's what I kept asking myself. And because since he, everybody loved him, he obviously hadn't done this to somebody else that I was aware of. So it had to have been my fault. So here's a question. How do we know that he hadn't done that to somebody else? Exactly. No talking, if no one's talking. Right. Wow. Exactly. So you left school. Where, where did you Where did you do after that? What'd you do? I actually got a job at Vanderbilt University as a uh, police dispatcher, and it was close to law enforcement, um, and was not my favorite job, just because I had preferred to have been on the other side of the radio. But I did that for about a year and had the opportunity to take the exam to become a commissioned officer. Took it and scored second on the exam and was one of the three that they that they hired. Loved it, but wanted to go on to quote bigger and better things. But I wanted my father to have retired first because I think as I said earlier he just worked his way up based on the work he did not because of who he knew and I wanted him to be you know gone and me to I was planning on getting married I wanted my name to be different uh, before I joined the department so that I could do it the way he did uh, just to be able to you know do what I did and hope get rewarded or punished um, for the work I did and not because of what my last name was. Well, I give you great credit for that. I'm, I'm thinking I watch a lot of police shows and uh, Blue Bloods come to mind. I don't know if you watch Blue Bloods out in New York. And everybody's a Reagan, you know. So, And they have, it, it has potential challenges with the expectations of others and they hold you to a higher standard. Um, but you wanted to do things on your own, on your own merit, for your own self, your father would have been extraordinarily pleased, you know, and probably would have wanted to help you. So that was maybe a good thing that, you know, you'd be backed off from him. So you were in, um, you became a detective. After, yes, I worked, I think it was about seven or eight years as a uh, patrol officer and training officer, and then I was able to go into the sexual uh, abuse the adult sexual abuse unit as a detective and I thought that my experience uh, from college would help make me a better detective and I hope it did um, but I, I did well from from what I was told by my supervisors really enjoyed it um, and after being there a couple of years I had a lieutenant or the lieutenant over the unit uh, he and I were staffing a case that I was working and during that as I'm kind of going through the case he stopped me and said oh wait 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 he said technically she said 
no. That that's true. She said no, but mm. she she went into the bedroom with him. She let him take her her blouse off. So yes, she said no, but she was really saying yes. So you need to close the case. And I was floored. I just shock and anger. I knew better than to just start cussing him, thankfully. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> that was my first inclination. Um, and it, I, I really didn't know how to respond. And I just ended up walking out and thought, okay, if that's the attitude of who is head of the sex abuse unit, then I don't know that I want to work here anymore. So that's when I, after a lot of soul searching, uh, about eight or nine months, I finally decided my heart just was not in law enforcement anymore and decided to leave. Did they know what had happened to you? Did your lieutenant ever know? He, well, he should have afterwards. I did tell, tell my sergeant you know, what he had said. Um, she said that she was going to tell the captain. Uh, I don't know whether that happened or not. He never, as far as I know, was never reprimanded or anything. He didn't get any days off for it. He never apologized. Um, and I did tell her what had, had happened to me. But, as, so, you know, as far as I know, they didn't care. If so they she, she knew what had happened to you, but he he didn't. Correct. That wasn't something known. Right. I, I, was it ever a trigger in your in your work? Did you ever have those moments that brought back what happened? I'm, I'm just. It didn't until then. That was the first time mm. that that the trigger had happened, and in large part because I had unhealthily managed to suppress it for so mm-hmm. long. And for whatever reason, that particular conversation um, brought it all back. No, you had no therapy, no therapist try to work this out. Uh, no judgment here. I'm just walking through this because I didn't either. You know, back in my day, my therapist wasn't something I would have done. I was too busy. I was working. I was, you know, taking care of the family. Um, but that's the one thing that we do suggest to our uh, survivors that they have an opportunity to speak it up, you know, to talk about it. Yes. And that's something that I should have taken advantage of. But again, when when it had happened in college, that was not something that was offered to me. Um, it was nothing that I really knew anything about. I didn't know of anyone who had ever gone through any type of, of therapy or counseling. And it wasn't until after that trigger that I decided, okay, this this obviously is not working for me, so let's let's go talk to somebody who can can help me process it. And found a wonderful wonderful counselor, and did work through it. I think very successfully. Although um, the first very first meeting. Uh, Apparently, in about three minutes, I had an extreme barrier posture where I was turned to the side, legs crossed, pillow in front of me. And she's like, you are really uncomfortable being here, aren't you? <laughs> like, yeah. I'm glad that I finally got the therapy. I wish that I had thought to do it sooner. But, you know, I've gotten it and it worked. And it, it's helped me in many situations since then. I was wondering if your if your therapist was a was a trauma-trained therapist because there are different levels of what they understand and, and how they, you know, work with, with um, survivors. Do you know right. if she was particularly? She was a LCSW. I do not believe that she was, was trauma, specifically okay. trauma. Okay. She did do an excellent so, job. Perfect. So now you've finished you've gone uh out you're out of the police department where did you go after you work with the police department uh began working as the victims of crime coordinator at a local nonprofit called the tennessee coalition against domestic and sexual violence how did you get connected with that group Honestly, I saw an ad in the newspaper that they were looking for victims of crime coordinator. It was it 
was just by luck that I happened to be looking and and saw him and interviewed and was lucky enough to to get the job. Again, though, you hadn't really opened up about what had happened. I mean, to your therapist, but to anybody else, did your family ever know? No. No. Did you ever feel like you should say something to them? After after counseling, yes, but it had been so long that I just never did. Okay. It's very interesting how we as survivors want to tell but don't. And, right. And I know that you have. So once you started speaking up, how did that make you feel? First, very terrified and nervous, but very okay. empowered. Very empowered. Okay. Um, taking, taking back control, which is something that survivors of any type of violence really, really needs. Um, particularly for sexual assault survivors, you've, you've had control over your body violently taken away from you, and it is essential that you begin to regain control in whatever way you can as quickly as possible. And that can be telling someone or deciding not to tell someone or deciding whether or not to report. Um, just making small decisions can go a long way to helping you rebuild your confidence and start feeling empowered and in control again. After the second assault, yeah, it was devastating. Yes. And you could have just hid under a rock forever, and you decided that you'd had enough, right? Right, yes. After that assault, I was almost literally hiding under a rock. Um, but timing is everything. And when I was at my lowest point, I found myself on uh, Facebook and don't remember getting on Facebook. It was a totally unconscious thing, but I was there and I started seeing the Me Too hashtag. And it clearly had a big impact on me. And I thought, you know what, it took one person. If Alyssa Milano in that moment hadn't decided, you know what, I'm going to post Me Too. And if she hadn't, then the 12 million plus in the next 24 hours wouldn't have. And I would not have seen that stream of Me Too's, you know, a couple days later. And in all honesty, if I hadn't have seen that, I would be dead. So Because you were, you were in the process of writing letters, right? Yes, yes. I was Who were you writing to? Um family and good friends just to say goodbye Saying, just just say goodbye but yes. i'm i'm trying to uh, to understand where you know if they had received a thank goodness they didn't if they had received that letter would they ever have understood yes uh, well i'm i'm glad you didn't i'm glad you're still here but that does happen and and we see it in in our um, organization too where people have not told their story. They don't have supportive friends and family or anybody. They've lost a lot of money. They've lost their dignity. They've lost their homes, everything. Um, and they feel like there's, there's no place to go. So the only option is, is suicide. And right. that's not the key. That's not the key. And you know that. So the rest of your story, after this now, you heard uh, Lisa Milano and the Me Too. Did you jump right into that? Well, actually, yes. Uh, again, not overly consciously. I mean, it was a few days after that, or actually, I think a couple of weeks after that. But the more I thought about it, I found myself writing this long, detailed, gory story about what had happened to me a few months prior um, to this unknown person uh, who was the head of Tennessee Women's March and just telling her, you know, what happened and blah, blah, blah. And I, again, just like how I ended up seeing Me Too, I have no recollection of setting out saying, I'm going to write this person and tell them my whole story. It, I had done it and I had sent it 
And then I was like, oh my God, what did I just do? Mm -hmm. um, but she was very wonderful, um, very compassionate, very understanding, very supportive, and said, hey, you know, we're doing something different here in Tennessee this year. We are going to have a conference prior to the march, and one of the uh, caucuses that we're going to have is the Me Too caucus. Would you like to facilitate? And again, my mouth went before <laughs> I had a chance to think about it, which in actuality, all of this was a good thing. But I said, sure. And was very nervous that day, um, but I got through it, and after I got through it, again, kind of shaky, but I felt like the burden of the world had been lifted. Um, mm -hmm. And I said, you know what, this, this is why this happened, or not necessarily why it happened to me. I mean, things bad things happen to people. There's not necessarily a, a reason why it happens. That's just life. But I felt like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is how I give purpose um, to the pain and the trauma that I experienced, and this is how I can turn it into a catalyst for good so that if I can reach one other person and keep them from finishing their goodbye letters, then, you know, it, it has purpose and meaning, and that's all I can ask for. What was your reception after you gave that talk? It was very good. Um, yes, I had a lot of, of supportive of people coming up saying, you know, thank you for, for sharing, and, and you did great, and... You know, some of them may have just been being nice. Hopefully, some of them really meant it. But it, from there, I've started doing some workshops. I started silent no longer, um, and really have tried to to keep sharing as much as I can. So that it, again, if there's somebody out there who hears the story and it and it saves them, or at least makes them realize that it wasn't their fault, they aren't to blame, um, they deserve better, then, again, it gives it purpose, and, and that's all I can ask for. I feel blessed for that. Absolutely, and and I'm thinking of, you know, my story, and, and a lot of that's the same thing, where yeah, I did have one woman that I say gave me the stink eye at the very beginning, and when I realized that I could let her stop me from what I was doing, or I could look at the woman sitting beside her that's bobbing her head up and down. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's when I said, okay, you're not going to be for everybody, and your message isn't for everybody, because there are people out there, right, that are going to still say they're going to blame the victim. Right. Uh, why, why do people do that? Why do women blame women victims, in your uh, professional opinion? <laughs> I still have not found an answer for that, in all honesty. <laughs> I, I don't know, but it is not uncommon and I have heard it more times than I even care to imagine and there's definitely setbacks where you think hey we've progressed but oftentimes we haven't but that cannot deter us because we won't progress we won't get things changed if we give up I heard you ask, you asked a question once how do victims perceive justice after an assault versus how does law enforcement perceive justice? I thought that was a really interesting conversation. Can you kind of let us know how you feel about that? Last year did a, some research because it was something I was curious about. And law enforcement, when, when speaking with law enforcement, overwhelmingly they perceive justice as institutional or traditional like oh, probably a lot of people do, you know. They, they get arrested, you know, they get convicted, they go to jail, you know, they're punished for their crimes. Uh, victims, however, were much more wanted just to be treated with respect. It was things like, I want them to believe me. I want them to listen to me, to what I have to say. 
it wasn't so much punishing the person it was just to be believed and and treated with with human dignity and that told me a whole lot as far as victims of sexual violence but I'm sure it happens with domestic violence as well with any type of exploitation uh, or scamming or something like that it's you just want to be treated with the respect that every human being deserves and all too often unfortunately people aren't treated with that respect and dignity and that's a, that is actually one of the blocks that our survivors have when we say that you know it's very important to report but when they go to report, and I would find this interesting as a former police officer, when they go into a police department and nobody wants to hear the story or doesn't know how to, how to process it, you know, what can we do to help law enforcement understand a victim? Do you guys have any victims advocates in your, in your departments? I know that's coming out now, but not enough. Um, even back in the de back in the 90s, when I was with the department, there we did have victim advocates. Um, there was not the focus on trauma-informed uh, advocacy or even interviewing like there is now. In fact, in my day, we had never heard of trauma-informed. So it's it's getting better, but that doesn't mean that just because someone goes and takes the class that they're actually going to retain or even use what they've what they've learned. So I think biggest thing is trying to educate for, for people who have gone through something for them to be the educators, not an academic, although I very much value academics, but somebody who's personally gone through it, let them go and share their story. Um, because that makes a bigger impact. When I went through a training a couple years ago, one of the things that was drilled into our head over and over and over by our communications instructor was, my feelings don't care about your facts. I can spout facts to you all day long. I can tell you that every 73 seconds a woman in the United States is raped. I can tell you that only 33% of rape victims report their assault. That's probably going to stay with you maybe 60 seconds, if that. But if I tell you in the form, like I do a lot of times, in, in storytelling, you know, if, if I say, if I am sharing my story and say, and I became one of the 77% of women who didn't report because I was terrified I wouldn't be believed. They're going to remember that probably more in that context. And I think that's what we need to be more active at as opposed to just having slides and statistics on, on a screen behind us as we're presenting. I think we need to dig deeper and actually be doing storytelling so that people can retain it and make them want to understand and act. Well, and the way I do it also is that so many people think, well, it's not going to happen to me. Right. But if you flip the page and say, but what if it were to happen to your mother or okay. your sister or your best friend? Mm -hmm. Don't you want to know? Don't you want to be aware and, and be aware of what's happening and what to do and where to go? That's how I look at it. Exactly. Um, and it, it it's hard, you know, and for me, my scam happened 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago. But it's happening at such a quick rate now. The pandemic did not slow down no. you know, violence at all. It increased it. It absolutely did. And, and our statistics are less than yours as far as reporting. Um, because people feel ashamed. They feel embarrassed. They're like, oh, why did I do that? And I'm like, you can't shut a coulda yourself to death. Right. It happened. And unfortunately, you were being manipulated. And when I, you know, it was interesting. When I went into the FBI and they said, well, you've been a victim. I'm like, nope not going to be a victim here. <laughs> yeah. and, but then I had, like you, I was like, okay, I'm not going to tell anybody either. And mm -hmm. I didn't, didn't for years. Um, but there's strength in sharing that story. And I love what you're doing. Kind of go in, tell us a little bit about um, Silent No Longer Tennessee. What is it and what are you doing? And I love what, uh, the part about you, um, the creative expression groups. That yes, part made so much sense to me. Can you kind of explain that to us? 
Yes, ma'am. Um, after after I spoke at, at Women's March, I decided to, to start the organization strictly as a very, very grassroots, small organization. Um, but steadily as realized that the need was there, um, have begun to grow it. And last year we, we submitted our application for 501c3. And we're providing things so people can tell their stories. Not everybody can, you know, like you and I, sit at a microphone and, and share, you know, some of our biggest traumas to strangers. So we want to provide opportunities so that victims can, and survivors can share their story in ways in which they are comfortable, whether that's through poetry, monologues, drama, dance, music, painting, mixed media. There are several different things that we're, we're wanting to provide so that they can share their story but do it in a way that isn't maybe as scary as, as standing in front of an auditorium of, of people and, and giving details about what happened to them. I think that's a phenomenal idea because people are, can be creative in so many different ways. And it's like learning. You know, some people read, some people listen, some people like to hands-on. I think we, we might be unique in, in our ability to take this and speak up about it, but I find, like you mentioned earlier, the more I talk, the stronger I get from the inside out. Right. But that's not everybody. And you said some, at one point that when we start talking to uh, victims and survivors that we can't fix it. And men try to do this, I think, more than women, and that's just a generalization. But when someone hears about this, we want to fix it, right? Yes. Um, oftentimes, any time we see someone we care about, it's just human nature, and especially with women, but with people in general. You want to fix it. You see your child fall down. You want to, you know, kiss the boo-boo and make it better. You know, I mean, that's just the way we're wired. But with sexual violence or any type of violence, financial violence, you know, anything, it's they've had a sense of control taken away from them. And like I was saying earlier, it's important that they start regaining control no matter how how small of a way it is, that that helps to build on getting your sense of confidence back and feeling empowered. And however you can do that. And, and things as simple it, for what we do at Silent No Longer, telling people, okay, someone has reached out to you and disclosed that they have been sexually assaulted and, and you're, you're with them supporting them. Don't say something as well-meaning as it may be. Hey, I'll go with you to the to the hospital, or do you? Would you like for me to be in the room when the police interview you? If they haven't mentioned reporting it to the police or going and getting medical care, don't don't even put that out in the universe because it's their decision to make. I think it's a good idea. To, to get medical treatment, I think it's a good idea to report, even though I didn't. It's their choice to make, and if we start saying things that are kind of leading, it makes them, or it can make people feel like I still don't have control, that they're telling me what I need to do. And it's hard to start getting a sense of self and a sense of empowerment back if you feel like you're not able to make your own decisions. That's an interesting idea because I'm thinking that Dr. Phil does a lot of shows about relationship scams mm -hmm. and it irritates me every time I watch them, although they've got excellent information and yes. proof, evidence, etc. I'm sitting there going, this is not helping the victim. Right. It is, she's just, you know, there because her family wanted to out her and it's making everybody else feel good, but not the victim. She has no control and is being told what she needs to do. And, and I think sometimes maybe we do that too, but we give, we give three steps to, to start you know, the process. Don't make anybody, but the only thing that we, we in our organization tell folks if they want to be with us is that they have to disconnect from all contact with scammers. Um, that doesn't right. always happen in, in sexual assault, right? Because I mean, you had to see the man that, that hurt you. And a lot of domestic violence 
women are living in homes where the the perpetrator, the assault, he's there in the house. Exactly. You know, we try to get them out, but um, you're just there as a support, right? As as an advisor. Correct. Correct. We're there to 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 listen, support, guide them however we can based on what they are telling us. Um, we will offer resources if if they ask. One of the things that that unfortunately happens is is after an assault, they are so um, either injured or embarrassed or what depressed that you just can't get out of bed. And mm. you do that too many days in a row, you don't have a job and you can't pay the bills. So we also offer resources such as therapy and counseling, uh, but also for things like rental assistance, utility assistance, food banks, food pantries, things like that, so that if they find themselves in that position, we can make sure that they can get, you know, have access to food or to people who can help them with bills while they are hopefully, if they choose to, getting the, the mental health assistance that they need to process what's happening, get through what they're going through um, as best they can. So, you know, there's, a, there's so many pieces and, and the same with relationship scans. There's so many pieces that it's not just going to a support group or a therapist. Because until that really starts working, you have other things going on like immediate needs, like keeping a roof over your head. So we want Absolutely. to we want to, you know, address that as much as we do, you know, everything else. Because it's, now it's all intertwined. So if somebody lives in Vermont, can they contact you? They can contact us. Um, we only provide services in Tennessee um, because we're just not large enough to, you know, provide things outside of that. That said, some of our trainings are still going to be virtual even past the pandemic because we want to reach as many people who may need help as possible. And as far as resources, we can you know, get with our partnering agencies and stuff and re and do research and find out what is available where that person is. So if they are in Vermont then and they don't know where to turn, we can do the legwork for them and get back with them and say, here's where you can get, you know, hot meals. Here's where you can get help with paying your light bill, things like that. We are happy to do that. We're happy to... to look up support groups and, and vet therapy or therapists and counselors for them. So wherever they are, we're happy to help. But as far as direct services and intensive, you know, things, that's, that's mainly for Tennessee. Okay, how can people get a hold of you? They can either message us. They can go to our website at www dot silent no longer tn dot org or they can email us at contact at silent no longer tn dot org or they can also call us and our phone number is six one five seven eight four eight six seven nine and it and if I may just for people who want to maybe see um what some of the creative expression programs, if there is somebody in Vermont who maybe wants to start a similar program. Um, on the 19th of February, we'll be having virtually, all virtual now because of the Omicron coming back, but um, having a thing, uh, event called Shadows Ignited, and the title represents how victims of any type of relationship scam, sexual assault, domestic violence, whatever, can oftentimes try to hide their experience because we're embarrassed um, mm -hmm. or feel like we're to blame. But as Dr. King told us, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. So we need to bring it to the light to really start healing. So everything that all the the poems and, and 
theater stuff has been written by victims. A lot of it's being performed by victims and survivors because they are now getting to the point where they feel comfortable sharing their story again in creative ways. So um, you can find out information about that on our website or if somebody's interested in, in having a similar program, please reach out to me and I can tell you how we did it and what we did and you know how it's working out so far. <laughs> Excellent. So that's called Shadows Ignited. It's on February 19th, and we can go to the website, which is silentnolongertennessee.org or tn.org? Correct. Is that right? It's, okay. Yes, it's on there, or you can find it on Eventbrite. Okay. I will put that on a slide for the, for the show. Greta, our hour, minus a couple of my little blips, um, has flown by, and I... You have so much great information, and I love your story. I love what you're doing. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for standing up and speaking up and being the one for so many people. That's really important. Um, you, you changed my life yesterday in a very positive way, and I, and I look forward to working with you and uh, maybe getting you to work with our, our SCARS, which is the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, to work together with our organization because they, there's so many things in common. And mm -hmm. I think it's very symbiotic. It's a good yes. vocabulary word for the day. Um, but it's, it's important. So if people want to contact you, we can do silentnolongertn.org. You can email Greta at contact at silentnolongertn.org. Uh, if anybody is on the verge of suicide, there are national hotlines. Uh, please, 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 you know, let's ask for help if you, if, or, or if other folks listen to what people are saying. You know, you can't fix it, but you can certainly listen. And I love where you said one time to listen for the pauses. Yes. Don't jump in and, and stop them. Listen with pause because we all say that, you know, stop, think, and connect. Sometimes mm -hmm. you have to take a pause. Um, and, and that'll help people reconnect and, uh, and regain some control. So thank you so very much for being my guest today. Thank you for having me. It's been a, been a pleasure and an honor. Thanks for listening to Stand Up and Speak Up. We are dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and being your best self. If you've been a victim of a scam or cybercrime, please visit againstscams.org for assistance and guidance about options and recovery. SCARS, the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, is an incorporated nonprofit crime victims assistance organization based in Miami, supporting scam victims worldwide. If you can, please make a small donation to help the victims around the world receive the help that they need. This episode has been sponsored by BenfoComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If you or anyone you know struggles with the pins and needles or numbness in their hands and feet, Check out our benfotaming products at benfocomplete.com and use the special code STANDUP for 5% discount on your purchase. Again, thanks everybody for being here with us today. Go to my website, thewomanbehindthesmile.com for additional information and resources. Check out my YouTube channel and subscribe and follow the replays of all of our great guests. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks very much for being here.